And now, with the Lord's help, we turn to this passage. And again, this morning and this evening, I will preach on verse 5. In particular, this statement, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I want to go over some of the points that I made in the last few weeks, not because I don't have submission material for a sermon this morning, but because of the importance of this, because of the level of misunderstanding that there is in the church at large, and because of the feedback I've been receiving as to the helpfulness of these sermons at this time. The first thing we've seen that this is a plan. And this predestination is part of God's plan. It's, it's God's own plan, revealed as part of the counsel of His will, as He says in Ephesians 1, verse 5, according to the purpose of His will. And verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time. A plan that He has worked out, verse 11, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Predestination is central to the plan of God, as are all aspects of the eternal salvation of God decreed in that plan. It's a perfect plan. It arises from God's holy, just, and wise character. And so, when we come to consider a plan that is perfect, we know that we cannot consider anything that is better. And so, it's not a case of looking at this plan to see the weaknesses or the holes in it, to see what we can bring to it, to add to it, but it is to submit to the authority of this plan because it is the perfect will of God. Thirdly, it's an eternal plan. As we read in Ephesians 1 verse 4, it was, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This is not a plan that God devised in eternity. Sorry, it's not a plan that God devised in time. This is a plan that has come from eternity and to eternity. And it is a plan that will never be changed because like its author, it is unchangeable. It's God's plan. It's a perfect plan. It's an eternal plan, and it will not change. This is a watertight plan. There's nowhere where you can poke a hole in it. Secondly, it's a plan, as we've seen, that permits man to exercise his free will in all aspects of his life. The key point to grasp and understand, as we have seen, is that since the fall, man has the capacity, as he had before the fall, but since the fall, he has the capacity to exercise his free will, but only in terms that are defined by his nature. Man cannot think, act, or speak in a way that is at odds, contrary to, or in opposition to his nature can't do that. It's not possible. He's defined by this plan. And this plan gives him freedom to exercise his will. But his will is that which governs his acting on the basis of that freeness. Whatever the man's will is, his nature is, that defines the boundaries of his freedom. A diseased tree cannot bear good fruit fact. It's an unconditional plan established by God in love and mercy and does not have its starting point in man's life. Romans 8, 29, man's is not going to be predestined because God looks in from eternity, sees the 
men accepting the will of God in terms of Christ and his submitting to him, and then God, as it were, goes back into eternity and decrees that those who accept Jesus as he sees them will be predestined. This word foresee, foresaw, relates to the act of God's predestining those whom he has chosen and elected. It does not relate to man's outworking of his nature and his subsequent acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we saw, if God were to look into time, not having predestined the work of the Holy Spirit to effectually call man, then none of us would be in heaven because of the nature that we own dead in the trespasses and sins, we would not seek after God. Romans chapter 3. No hope at all. So, the teaching that says, yes, God predestines, but He does so upon foreseeing men and women accepting Jesus of their own will, is wrong. And it's wrong, and we have to understand that it's wrong. It's wrong because it denies the total depravity of man. It denies the true nature of man and his sin. And it says that that is not biblical. That man can of his own volition raise himself from the dead the man can come to believe in Jesus of his own volition. So the, the idea that God foresees and so predestinates on the basis of his foreseeing is wrong because it denies the biblical truth of total depravity. It also denies the biblical truth of God's electing love and the unconditional nature of that, that God chooses those whom he loves, not on the basis of the merit that anyone may have in their own eyes to come to Jesus. It denies the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and renewal. It denies the work of the Holy Spirit in guaranteeing our salvation. It's a teaching that denies that Christ died for a fixed number, a vast fixed number of men and women, a number known only to Him and the Father, the idea that God foresees and the basis of what men do in time in accepting the gospel of their own volition, rising themselves from a dead heart, ignoring the total depravity, ignoring the work of the Holy Spirit and regenerating and renewing, denies the fact that there's a vast number that has been fixed by God that Jesus talks about in John chapter 13, 18 and elsewhere. It says that the number is flexible. Anybody can respond to Jesus. It denies the truth and veracity of Scripture in that regard. It denies the fact that not only is the regenerating and renewing work of the Spirit a real work, but it denies, as I say, the guaranteeing work of the Holy Spirit as sealing us in and keeping us forever. It advocates the fact that men who come to Jesus of their own volition, raising themselves from the dead, ignoring the work of the Holy Spirit, at odds with Scripture pertaining to the fixed number, a vast fixed number, 
can then and must sustain themselves until the day of judgment, but they can fall. So we need to understand this. This is just not a statement against what God has decided to do. It's a statement against the nature of man. It's a statement against the electing love of God. It's a statement against the fact that Jesus died for a limited vast number of people. It's a statement against the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating, renewing, and preserving. It's a statement against huge biblical doctrines pertaining to our eternal salvation. It is not something inconsequential. But, why did God elect and then predestine those whom he has set his love on? Yes, God's love is the ground of our salvation. But what motivated God in the first place? What motivated God to choose? What motivated God to predestine? What motivated God to adopt? What motivated God to give us a place in heaven? What motivated God? It's very important to understand what God's motivation was. Because if we don't understand God's motivation, we won't understand his goal. And we'll be looking at his goal this evening. If we don't understand his goal, we won't understand our role in this whole wonderful, glorious reality. If you don't have a clear objective or a clear comprehension of the goal of what is happening, how can you realize your role in it? If you don't discern what it's all about, if it's just doctrinal theology for you, and it doesn't hit you in terms of your heart and your mind and your hands and your feet, then what is it about? Is it just about gaining of knowledge so that you can speak to an argument with someone else? What's the point of that? What's the point of that? There's need for us to understand what the motivation for God was doing this. What motivated God? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And the words are according to his purpose. And you'll say, well, that really doesn't give a great deal of information about his motivation. What that tells us is that what he did was according to what he had decreed. It doesn't give us insight into the motivation behind his doing what he did according to his purpose. And here I think the ESV is weak. Because if you look at the original, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have tools that enable me to do that, it doesn't say, according to his good pleasure. The King James Version and the NIV actually get it according to the Greek. Because there it reads, according to the good pleasure of him. It doesn't speak of it according to his purpose. It speaks of the motivation 
his good pleasure. God set his electing love and predestined men unto everlasting glory. Why? Because of his good pleasure. And that's clear. It's clear from the Old Testament. We see that in God's word, how God chose Israel, having chosen Abraham, because of his good pleasure. Before his death, Joshua speaks and he says concerning the man chosen of God to lead Israel into the promised land, gathered all the tribes of Israel. That's what Joshua did. He gathered all the tribes together at the end of his life and he brings them together and he, he's going to tell them something. Not about his life, about, but about their future. And he speaks to them and he says in Joshua chapter 24 concerning this, he says, verses 2 of Joshua chapter 24, And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, they served other gods. That's who he was. He was a server of other gods. And it says, I took your father Abraham and brought beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And when Ezra talks about this taking of Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldees and, and Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 7, it says, You are the Lord, the God who, brought, who chose Abraham and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. This bringing of Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees is defined in terms of choosing. And we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4 how the extent of this choosing not just went to um, to uh, Abraham, but goes to Israel as well. For we read in chapter 4, verse 37 and 38 of, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought them out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. God brought Abraham out of the hour of the Chaldees. Why? Because he chose him. Was Abraham the only one that was chosen? No. Abraham wasn't the only one who was chosen. God, in his word, chose the people of God, the entire nation of Israel that came from the loins of Abraham. And he chose them, and he speaks of them as being an entire nation. That's who they are, a people chosen unto God. For it says, Jeremiah chapter 4, 14, verse 2, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people's who were on the face of the earth. They were a chosen people. A people chosen by God. And all this choosing by God, God acts sovereignly and unconditionally in His love for them. He chooses them as He does the same in creating the heavens and the earth. Isaiah talks about that. In Isaiah chapter 44, he speaks of how He establishes the earth and how He creates the earth. And he says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. God sovereignly elected and chose the people of God. He chose Abraham. He then chose the people of God. This is what he does. And it was never motivated by anything in Abraham or the people. It was solely and wholly motivated by God's electing love and for his own good pleasure. Deuteronomy chapter 10. 
Deuteronomy chapter 10 says concerning this reality. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of the heavens, the earth and all that is in them. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all the peoples as you are this day. God chose them because he loved them. God chose them because he had delight, not in them, but delight in the choosing of them. You see, this is where many people get confused today. They think that God chooses someone because they respond to Jesus. God chooses someone because they delight in Jesus. Because someone comes to believe in Jesus, therefore God chooses them. Because that's the only way in which they can marry the predestining work of God and the free will of man. They forget that man's free will is exercised within his nature. And if a man is dead, then he cannot choose Jesus. If a man is dead in his trespasses and sins and under the authority of the, the prince of the power of darkness, he will not aspire to delight in anything that God does or has. His whole raison d'etre is to be at war against God. And so if someone's uh, desire is to be at war with God, then why would they delight in God at all? They don't delight in God. They don't want God. They have no desire for God. They want to be rid of God and any thought of God and any practice of God and any way of God. They will not have it in their life. They will declare, I am autonomous in terms of the rule of my life. I will do what I want to do when I want to do it. Of course, they can come and sit in church and think and say that. That's just the reality of it, isn't it? It's God who delights. It's God who loved these men. I loved them, he says. Yet the Lord set his love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all the peoples. Why did he love them? Because he loved them. His love wasn't engendered or engineered because of anything they did, said, or thought. It was a sovereign love. It was a love that was decreed. As he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The, peop the Lord your God has chosen you to be a treasured, a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples of the earth, who are in the face of the earth, and then hear this, Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that he might bring you into a land that he promised you. It's about God's love. God's love and God's delighting in men. But that's the Old Testament. Then. I mean, we live in the era of the New Testament, don't we? Or beyond the era of the New Testament. What does the New Testament say? Well, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, we read about the 70 coming back after Jesus has sent them out, or the 72, depending on the number you read it. In Luke chapter 10, we read how they come back to Jesus and they say, Look, even the demons are subject to us. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on the serpents and the scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. 
they come back and they are bouncing. They are ecstatic. They're, they're looking at Jesus and saying, this was astonishing. We went and preached as you told us. And even the demons, even the demons and people's lives came out of them. We went up to people who were filled with demonic influence and power. And we preached in your name and we told the demons to come out. And those demons come out. Isn't that astonishing, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you what's astonishing. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice at the driving out of the demons. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And then he goes on and he says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have not you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. Jesus is rejoicing. The Spirit is rejoicing. And the Father is rejoicing. Jesus is rejoicing because the work of preaching is bringing in the lost. In for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He's rejoicing in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is filling Jesus and he's moving Jesus to rejoice. This is only one of two occasions in Jesus' life that's recorded for us that he rejoiced. And then he says, as I read, Yes, the Father, for such was your gracious will. Now why bring that in? Because it's the same in the Greek as what we find in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 10. It's not for the counsel of his own will. It's for his good pleasure. God hid things from the wise and understanding. And he revealed them to the little children. And he did so for his own good pleasure. That's what he did it for. That's what Jesus is standing here rejoicing saying. These people who were chosen... Chosen to hear the gospel, received the gospel, and they believed because it was revealed to them. And I'm rejoicing at that because they will be in heaven. And the Spirit in me is causing me to rejoice in that because they will be in heaven. And the Father is rejoicing in that because it's the fulfillment of His good pleasure that they will be in heaven. That's the cause. That's the reason. That's the motivation. That's the desire. That's the passion. And just as, as the election of Abraham and uh, the idolater from the Ur of the Chaldees and, and Isaac, his miracle-born son, and Jacob, the younger of the two, God contradicts human acts. He doesn't go on the basis of what men say or think. He hides from the wise and reveals to the helpless the way of salvation because they are his chosen. And he does so for his own pleasure. For his own joy. Because he loved the people of Israel. Not for what they did. But for his own pleasure he did this. And because of his own pleasure he sends forth the gospel as he did in the New Testament period. And he sends forth the gospel now. And every time that a believer is converted. 
and comes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is rejoicing in heaven. And I used to think that that rejoicing in heaven related to the angels. It doesn't. It wasn't many years ago that I learned in the study of that it had nothing to do with the angels rejoicing. It was God rejoicing. God was rejoicing at the salvation of a sinner. Why? Because it's the fulfillment of his good pleasure. God predestined for his own pleasure. God predestined for his own glory and joy. You see, what we're reading about in Ephesians chapter 1 is, is doctrine. And we must understand this doctrine. But it's doctrine which centers in, flows from, and comes back to God. It's not about you and me. It's doctrine that flows from the plan of God into time and in Christ and comes back to God. God blessed us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, even as He chose Him, that is, in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has loved us in the Beloved. In Him we have been redeemed through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, set forth in Christ the plan of the fullness of time to unite all things together in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. You need to understand this is not about you and me. It's about God. And when God has this plan, this perfect plan, this wonderful plan, this glorious plan, this eternal plan, this plan that speaks to our salvation, this plan that speaks to our need of salvation, this plan that speaks to our bringing into salvation, this plan is all about God and it's all for His pleasure. And many of the problems that you and I have in our lives is because we don't understand that. We think it revolves around us. It's about me. It's about me going to heaven. It's about me getting what I need. It's about me getting the reward that I should have. It's not about you and me. It's about God. In His love, He chose Israel. Not because of what they did, but because He loved them. For His good pleasure, He chose them. For His good pleasure, He has this plan. For His good pleasure, He predestined us. Isn't that glorious? That it takes us out of the equation. It's not about us. It sets us free. It gives us liberty to love and delight in Him. And when people, good people, godly people confuse this and get it wrong, it's just not that they're, they're getting wrong the doctrine of total depravity. It's, just, it's not that they're, they're limited atonement. They're getting that wrong. It's just not that they're misunderstanding the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that they're getting wrong God's electing love. It's not just that they're getting those doctrines wrong. What they're getting wrong 
is the entire motivation behind the plan of salvation. They're getting wrong. It's for God's pleasure. And that's sad. That's sad. I have a human father. He's an old man. Imperfect like all men are. But any contact I have with him, the only thing I want to bring him is joy and give him pleasure in life. That's all I want to do. I've resolved that that's, that's my purpose, is to give him all the pleasure that I can give him. Whether that's sitting, eating an Ulster fry with him and being patient as he makes his way through it. Whether that's hiring a vehicle in the summer and taking him to places where he grew up. Sitting, listening to him. I just want to give him that joy. Do you and I not want to give God all adoration and praise that this work of salvation in your life and mine is not centered on me and you? It's centered on His pleasure, His joy, arising out of His love. Is that not a wonderful thing? Does that not take us into a completely different Headspace. Does that not help us to ask different questions of our own life and come up with different answers to those questions in our lives? Does that not lead us to want to delight in the fact that these wonderful, glorious, beautiful doctrines talk about our God and what pleases Him? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would forgive us wherein we have talked about these doctrines and held them as something that we have to use to win a discussion. <clears throat> or held them that we might just understand them better, but not understanding the truth concerning the motivation behind them. Father, we delight today. Father in heaven, we delight today. Lord God most highly, we delight today in the truth that this plan of salvation manifest at the cross 2,000 years ago, being worked out now through the preaching of your word, this plan originated in your good pleasure, in your love, and has nothing, nothing to do with us. And yet, we are the recipients of all that flows from your love and your fulfillment of your good pleasure. Oh, how blessed we are. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the fact that you love us and have done this thing for your own good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.